This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guarantee. So go check them out at linode.com slash freelancershow. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Freelancer Show. On our panel today, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And Kai Davis. Hey, hey, hey. And I'm Ruben Lerner, and we are going to talk this week about publishing. Publishing books, but not exactly how to publish a book, rather... Traditional publishing versus self-publishing. So let's first go around, like, tell everyone what, what we have published. I mean, not like a detailed list, but like, you know, what, what have we published on our own? What have we published traditionally? And maybe why did we go those routes? And then we can sort of dive into then all the other things, like why other people should chose, choose those. Yeah, pro and con smackdown. That's cool. Uh, I'll, I'll start. I have written, uh, I think, six books give or take um it's kind of hard to it's harder to measure actually than it sounds now that i think about it uh i've done a tech a bunch of tech books one with sam's three with o'reilly i self-published a book uh, and i'm about to publish another self-publish another book and then i've contributed chapters to four i think four other books that were all self-published, not traditional published types of things. So I've been, and, and I think my first book was in 2006, so over 10 years ago. Uh, I've self-published, I haven't done any traditional publishing. I've worked with clients who have either uh, been in the process of publishing through a traditional publisher or have just released a book through a traditional publisher. So I have some strong opinions about how the traditional publishing game is played and uh, the support they offer there. But in terms of my own books, I've self-published three books and a number of mini booklets. And I'm a big fan of the self-publishing route. I think there's a lot of pros to it. And with few exceptions, it's the route I strongly advocate for. Interesting. So I published a book back in 2000 um, on Pearl uh, through the traditional route. I don't think there was non-traditional publishing there unless you were a crackpot. Um, and <laughs> it was such a terrible experience. I said, never again. Um, and partly it was terrible because of me, I'll admit, like if you were to ask them, they'd say, Oh, Ruben, that guy who dragged his feet and never hit deadlines. Um, so when people start talking about self-publishing, I said, Oh, maybe I should try this. So I've now self-published two, uh, eBooks about programming, one about Python and one about regular expressions. Um, and the, the Python book sells okay, and the regular expressions book sells um, to be charitable horribly. Uh, <laughs> and, um, oh, I mean, I guess I also self-published a book about, um, uh, for, for Jew, traditional Jews visiting China, um, which, I some, which I may at some point expand. Talk about niching, right? I, I may at some point expand to, like, people who just generally want to go to China, because I've sort of accumulated enough information on that, but we'll see about that. 
Um, so part of what sparked my interest in this is, I mean, I know, Jonathan, you get this question a lot, which is people asking you, should I self-publish or go through a traditional publisher? And I uh, got email, and I've heard this happens to people, maybe this happened to you guys. I got email from a publisher about two years ago who said, oh, I see you've self-published an ebook on Python. I would love to publish that through our traditional publisher. And at the time I said, no, 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 that is ridiculous. I would never stoop so low. I mean, I, I was a little nicer to him in person. But basically I said, like, I would never stoop so low as to use your traditional quaint methods of distribution and marketing. I will make tons of money off of my mailing list and self-publishing. Um, and several years later, like two years later, as I'm feeling a little chastened by this, that maybe it's not as easy to market books as I thought, I got email from another publisher saying, hey, we'd like to publish your book. So I now actually have phone meetings in the coming week or two with two traditional publishers. And, and I've started to think, well, maybe it's good for different things and for different people. And saying mm -hmm. yay or nay all the time is, is a little overbearing. Um, and part of my thing is also, I mean, we can go also the directions. My thing is, okay, my original thought was, okay, if I self-publish, I make 100% of the money. I can get it all. And... 100% of whatever I'm charging for my book, especially if there are tiers and videos and so forth, is way more than I could ever hope to make through a traditional publisher. I mean, so, so just to, like, to set the scene, and you guys can double check me, if, uh, like, like check me if I'm wrong here. The way it works with traditional publishers, you sign a contract with them, usually an onerous contract that says they more or less own the book forever. Um, and don't you even try to publish it again on your own or excerpts or whatnot. And they give you an advance. So they give you money so that you can spend time writing the book. They then, after the book is published, pay you royalties. The royalties come out of the advance. So I was given for my pro book a $5,000 check. Um, by the way, I had an agent at that time. We can talk about that also if we want. So my agent Ooh. took, I think it was 10% of it. Um, so I got, you know, what was it, you know, four dollars $4,600, something like that. Um, I cashed the check, started writing. Some long period of time later, I finished the book. They started selling it. Um, and at Strangely enough, I'm sure it was a pure coincidence. Um, at the time when my royalties hit about five thousand dollars, they said, "Well, we're done selling this. Bye bye." No. <laughs> so yes. So basically, the advance was what I got paid, um, and that was part of the reason why I was so sore about the whole thing. Because I was like, "What? What happened to my being a multi-million-dollar best-selling computer book author?" <laughs> and and so my thinking now is maybe I don't care about the money as much as getting my name out as an established expert and getting my name out to people mm -hmm. who will want to then invite me to teach courses, which are actually more lucrative than selling a book, even if I sell tons of books on my own. Anyway, that's that's where my thinking is right now. Yeah, it's I, what you just described is called recouping the advance. And it's it's I think pretty standard uh, that the it can get so much more complicated than you probably even wanted to go into. It gets really complicated. Uh, I've had three different book deals, four, four different traditional, but no, I guess not. Many, I haven't done all of them though. So like I've had some book deals where it was like, yep, we're, you know, green light, here's the check. And I, and one time I got into the book and I was like, you know what, this, this is not a good idea. I, I didn't realize it until it was too late. I was like, this isn't gonna sell. I don't want to write this. It's too late. So I, I, I offered to give them the money back and they were like, oh, that's all right. We'll just take it out of the other, you know, recoup it from other books that are, you wrote that are still selling. But basically I canceled the contract and I gave them their money back. Another time, uh, I, the very first book deal I got was as the co-author, sort of secondary co-author 
with another guy who had written a bunch of books and and we we started to do it and I had I, at the time I had written uh, I'm not sure if this is relevant I'd written a, been writing a lot for magazines and I was like well I'll just do the same thing except for instead of an article it'll be a chapter and uh, it went horribly wrong it was a very different approach than doing magazine writing and and my co-author didn't really want to do that much work either. I think he was kind of just throwing me a bone and say, Hey, I'll put your name on a book, but you have to write the whole thing. Um, and it, and it just fell through. We basically missed all the deadlines and we were like, never mind. <laughs> um, it's, it's a lot. It's so, and, uh, but speaking of, speaking of the things that you, in the contract that you need to negotiate, I mean, right up front, you have to, you send them like a book proposal and you need, you're immediately, you're negotiating with like, what's actually going to be in the book. Who's it, who's, it for what are the uh, what does it compete against how are you going to differentiate from the things that it competes against they kind of put you through this really it's a really good exercise where they sort of decide in advance how are they going to market this thing who's the market for it how are we going to market it why is it different and why is it better why should people buy it which is a great exercise to go through um but you're negotiating already like it's not like you can just sit there and be smart and write it down it, like you're negotiating from the very beginning and then you get it to a place where they're like okay i should say collaborating really not negotiating uh, but then they're like okay this we think this is going to sell we think we can do this so here's the deal and like rubens i i don't really remember it was a negligible amount of money maybe maybe 2000 maybe 5 2000 maybe advanced for my first book maybe 5,000. I don't think I've gotten a five-figure advance for any individual book. It ain't value-based pricing, that's for sure. No, no. There's, <laughs> it's not worth it at all. I mean, it's it's certainly not something you can live on while you write it if you're used to doing like any kind of freelancing or consulting. It's for the amount of, I mean, the, if you broke it down hourly and you only got paid the advance, it would be like you'd be better off working at a Starbucks probably. Uh, but then, you know, and then there's all these things in the contract, like, um, we, in my case, I don't think any, I think I technically owned the content, but I had to grant them an exclusive worldwide license to, to sell it, to translate it into other languages, to, uh, something else too. I think ebook and print rights are separate and they're negotiated differently. You get a different percentage of those, there's a lot of stuff to go through and lots of places to, if you care about the money, there's lots of things to fight about uh, up front there. Uh, I think the best royalty rate I got on any of the books was 10%, which was far higher than industry average at the time. The industry average, at least from what I was told, was more like 5%. Wow, I think I got 10%. Um, a lot of good it did me, but that was also in 2000 and the publishing industry has suffered a lot since then. Right. So, you know, I, uh, I just kind of wanted to go into that to give people a little bit of a picture of, you know, because we're going to contrast that at some point with self-publishing, which is like, you know, the polar opposite of that. It's like write whatever the hell you want, whenever the hell you want and keep a hundred percent of the money, you know? So, but I don't think, I, I don't know if I would say that that, uh, going through that exercise, that sort of collaboration on what the book's about, that initial collaboration and then the agreement and then having a, there's sort of like a project manager, I think, what's the, I can't remember the name, it's not an editor, there's like I, a, there's like a. I had an acquisitions it, editor. Yeah, that might be it. And they, they kind of 
whip you on the deadlines as you miss them. And <laughs> then there's like a technical editor, at least for books like Ruben and mine, where they're actually reviewing the code to make sure that, you know, if you've written, if there's Python or JavaScript or whatever in your book, that it actually works and you didn't introduce a bug uh, when you were moving it from an actual running code file into a text document, which is really easy to do. And, you know, uh, and eventually they, you're done with your writing piece and then they go and, uh, types it all, you know, all the stuff to actually produce the book, which you don't have to know anything about and don't care about. And it, and, and man, when that first box of them comes to you and you open it up, it's like, Oh my God, I wrote a real book. It looks amazing. <laughs> it looks so real. And so that whole collaborative process if you've never written a book before, it's actually really beneficial because you don't have to do everything yourself. You don't really know from anything else. You know, it's kind of like an education the first time around. So I think Christmas, uh, who is it? The CSS guy. Uh, oh, it, it doesn't matter. The CSS reset guy whose name is escaping me. I want to say Christmas, you know, but that's not it. Uh, anyway, he, he says that, you know, everybody should write exactly one book for O'Reilly, you know, software developer. <laughs> Everybody should write one book for O'Reilly, not two. I have to agree with that. Because yeah, O'Reilly's amazing, and I've written for other publishers. Uh, O'Reilly is, is my favorite, but it's, uh, it is a marathon the way that they, they put you through it. All of the pieces you described are such value adds in my perspective when you go with a traditional publisher, just having somebody sit down and say, who is this for or how is it different? Exactly as you explained, it's so valuable to be able to hand off, you know, your, your document and say, great types at it, make it beautiful. And then the books show up working with clients who have gone the traditional publishing route. I found like that's really where traditional publishers typically fall off. There's not a lot of time or attention, at least in the projects I've been associated with, spent on, here's the marketing plan for the book. Here's the launch plan for the book. Here's how we're going to get attention for your book. Here's our strategic campaign to make a play for a bestseller list, be it on Amazon or in print. A lot of that is really left up to the author. And that's one of the, re and I'm not sure if this mirrors your experience, Jonathan or Ruben, but it's one of the reasons why I'm a little more sour on traditional publishing. I think they do a wonderful job at helping you get the book completed and printed. But in terms of launching and promoting and letting people know that there's a thing available, there hasn't been as much support there that I've seen as I'd expect. Yeah, yeah I, definitely. I, I'm struggling to think of any marketing that the publisher did back when I published my pro book with them. I think it was all me. Like they asked me who samples copies should be sent to and I emailed them and I think I got things into reviews. But like the actual work on their part, zero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the way, Eric Meyer is the name I was trying to think of before. Ah, okay. Um, but yes, that that is exactly my experience. O'Reilly, I, I I love O'Reilly. I think they're a great publisher. If you want to go traditional publishing or the traditional publishing route, and you're doing software, it's hard to come up with a better one. Uh, there are certainly good ones, but I, I was very very happy with O'Reilly. Um, I, I I think that they did do some post launch marketing for me, but you know, it was the same thing. Who should we send advanced copies to? Who should we get this reviewed? Who, sh who you know, can you reach out? They'd ask me, could you reach out to them? Because they probably know you. They probably don't know us. 
And, <clears throat> and they did do things like, um, they would proactively reach out to me and say, Hey, we're doing a conference. I, we think that your book would, the subject of your book is something you should talk about there. Can we sign you up to speak? You know, that kind of thing. Also, they would periodically have like, uh, you'd get an email every once in a while that would say, Hey, your book's being included in the back to school bundle or the, the web programming bundle. Here's a link to tweet about it if you want. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't nothing, you know, they would do it maybe, maybe quarterly. I would get an email like that. Um, they were always trying different things They're pr It's a pretty innovative company for, you know, dead tree type of publishing. Um, and in fact, I think they're moving in different directions now, but, but you know, when I was actively doing it, which I, I don't even remember 2010, I think was my first book with O'Reilly. It was, you know, still a really big deal. Bookstores were still a thing and you know, you, I would go into bookstores and I would sneak into bookstores and like sign my own book and leave it there. Like, is this a <laughs> awesome. um, yeah. So, you know, so if you ever bought, uh, you know, building iPhone apps with HTML, CSS and JavaScript in the Providence, Rhode Island area, you might want to check inside. That is cover. fantastic. I, I, um, I, by the way, I mean, I, I think that O'Reilly long ago stopped seeing books as a profit center for them. I think they publish books because it gives them just it gives their authors some uh, authority, but mm -hmm. I'm guessing their book publishing division breaks even, or maybe does a little better than that. And it's really the conferences and such that they're bringing the real money. That's a total guess, but given how all the other publishers are struggling, uh, I don't think it's totally off. That makes sense to me. Sort of a loss leader type product, build an audience and then funnel them to a high margin event. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's that that's maybe a good segue into the should we well, actually should we talk about kind of contrast that to self publishing because of what I, at some point we should talk about why you would want to do one or the other like the let's, the underlying reason for doing one or the other I think it almost decides it for you so yeah let's, I let's, say let's, let's talk about the benefits of traditional publishing first and then the oh. pros and cons of self-publishing. Perfect. Oh, that's good. Okay. That's good. Yeah. So what about you, Ruben? What, what were the pros for you with your traditional published books? Um, so the first thing is it's not, look, it's nice to have someone actually editing what you're doing, right? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. I think I write pretty well. I tend to edit my own text pretty well, but let's face it, a different pair of eyes um, and someone who's trained to edit is going to catch things that you're not. Um, so that's nice. I mean, nowadays you can hire your own editor, but these people are real editors, real book editors. Um, I do seem to remember that I had to actually, I can't believe that I did this. I had to make my own index, which seems insane because oh. inde in indexing is like an art and tedious and horrible. So, um, but I think most publishers are less cruel than mine was. Uh, and so like they'll, they'll give you an index, which is not a negligible thing because a lot of people will look for stuff especially a technical book via the index. Um, they'll definitely give you, um, I'd say in many ways, more authority, especially if you're a lesser known person, uh, like on the, on, in, in the niche that you're trying to break into, right? It's, it's one thing to say, I've self-published books on this topic. It's, it's, it really is a different thing to say, and I've published one, or maybe even more, O'Reilly books or any books, right, um, from real publishers. It, it, it tends to elevate you in the eyes of your audience. Um, notice, and now, now I'll tell you also, when I spoke with this publisher about two years ago and he was trying to convince me to 
move my self-published book to his publishing house, he said, look, how many copies are you really going to sell on your own? And he was even making a financial argument, which I think is possible. He was saying, even if you're only getting 10% of what we make, um, we are going to move many, many more copies than you could ever move. And so you'll end up making much more. Um, I'd say that's possible. I'm a little skeptical. There's definitely a possibility, especially if you don't have a strong audience, mailing list, lots of fans um, to, to buy your books when they come out. So those are the ones I can think of off the top of my head now. I completely agree with you on the point of having like that established ingrained audience, an audience you've already built. I think of uh, Kevin Kelly's uh, 1,000 True Fans essay. And I also think of a recent article that I think our mutual friend uh, Paul Jarvis published about his uh, uh, non-self-published, his traditional published book that just happened. And he got a six-figure book deal out of it primarily because he had that already established audience. And bringing that to the table just seems to really improve it in terms of what you're able to do with a traditional publisher. If you're able to show up and say, I have 40,000 people who read my weekly newsletter who have bought my books before, that's a much stronger position to be negotiating from or even beginning a discussion from than, hey, I've self-published a few books or, hey, I'm seen as an authority on this topic. It tips the scales in your favor to say, I have an inbuilt in, uh, audience that I will bring with me for this book. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it raises the it raises the question of like, well, what do you what is Paul Jarvis or somebody with 40,000 or or, or 400,000 people on their mailing list? What do they need? You know, I don't know. Who he's going through. I think it was. Uh, uh, do you remember Houghton Mifflin? Doesn't matter. It's like, why does he need someone to give him 100 grand or whatever to write this book when he could easily make that by selling a tenth of of the number uh, at 100% profit. You know, like mm -hmm. I've made I've made much more money like in absolute dollars, more money from self-publishing hourly billing is nuts than I did from uh definitely most of my other books, perhaps all of them combined. But mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So it's to me it's kind of like there's a couple of factors because after I did, well, after I saw that happening, I was like, wow, you know, now that I'm experienced, I know how to get a book done. I was like, mm -hmm. why would I ever, I even, in fact, I even talked with publishers about, um, about publishing with them. And I was like, you know, they were, it was kind of like, Hey, you know, are you ready to write another book? And I said, actually I am, I, I've, I've got an idea, but it's a business book and all of my contacts are in the software publishing world. It's a business book, but it's for software developers. But, and they're like, oh, well, you know, that might be interesting. We've been sort of thinking about that idea. And I'd be like, I mean, not to be blunt, but why would I do that? <laughs> you know, like you guys don't have a really have an audience for business books. You, it would be kind of a one of a kind for you. I assume the deal would be similar to previous books. So like really, why, why would I really do that? But the reason I think I was thinking that way is because my goals for that book were different than than they were for previous. Uh, I'll just keep, I'm just going to keep referring to the iPhone book so I can talk about it. So my goals when I wrote the iPhone book, it, to me it was going to be. I mean I felt like the information needed to be out there. I was passionate about the subject and I want I wanted a, a book on it for myself. There was no book at the time, so I just wanted to write it. So that was I think that's a prerequisite for writing any book because it, it's like a freaking marathon. It's hard. So 
once you have that, it's like, well, why would I go with this publisher when I could just self-publish, even if I could have back then? The answer is because it's a 300-page business card. It's mm -hmm. like, it, it, you know, I've probably, I, I'm positive I've done over a million dollars in consulting revenue directly because I published that book. So it's not like, you know, oh, did I, did I, you know, I made my advance bet back. There were a few months when I got maybe a couple of grand in royalties after I recouped my advance, but it was nothing to write home about, you know, it was, I've made more money selling hourly billing is nuts in the first year. So, but you know, it's having a book like that. And then, you know, and, and every time you show up in public, cause I was doing a lot of speaking gigs at the time too. It's so like Jonathan Stark, mobile consultant and author of building iPhone apps for O'Reilly. That's a big deal because it because when you're a spaz about your marketing and your positioning, and you don't even really know what you do. Like most people, uh, they just sort of like, oh, I'm into coding. I'm into a particular kind of coding. I don't really know why anybody values it or whatever. Having a book uh, sort of a, is like a de facto positioning statement, author of concise title. And mm -hmm. since the since the since you worked with a third party, your publisher, to make a really good title that's going to have traction with the current market, you accidentally get positioned as an expert at that thing. And it completely works. <laughs> I can promise you, because it leads to speaking gigs and speaking gigs lead to clients. The book leads to clients. The speaking gigs lead, you know, the clients and the speaking gigs and all the work leads to more books. And you can really do that kind of cycle. As, you know, speaking as a software developer, you can do that cycle where you are just on the speaker circuit and you put out a book every year or two and you just, you know, you just keep doing that. And it's, but you're not going to be making a ton of money off of the book until I don't think you can, I don't think you really start making money off books until you're in like a really, really mainstream area. If, so if we're mm -hmm. talking like, if we're talking like, you know, it's got to be a mainstream business book that the kind of thing you'd find in an airport bookstore. It seems to me that that's that's when you can be like, all right, I'm a full time author. And every year I release a new book. It hits the New York Times bestseller list for a few days. It ends up in every airport bookstore and it's very highly rated in its category on Amazon. And that's my job, you know, and they probably do speaking gigs or consulting, probably not even consulting gigs probably speaking gigs and keynote presentations uh, for conferences or internal events. And that's the life, like a Dan Pink type of person, but, or Seth Godin or something. Every once in a while they sell a class and 10,000 people sign up. So, but, uh, yeah. So I'm curious. I, I, I like your description of the book as a 300 page business card. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I can totally appreciate the fact that once you've got that out there, once you are an established author with an established traditional publisher, People, and when I say people, I mean like CEOs, CTOs, you know, chief marketing people, the folks who are making the high value, high budget decisions in companies will see you in a new different light. Um, my mm -hmm. question is like, did, did you then use this book in your marketing and that led to these gigs or did they seek you out as the expert either to speak at conferences or to consult for them? Uh, I don't remember. I mean, I put it on my website, but to call that marketing is pretty, is pretty big stretch. <laughs> I did, I did know, you know, I was working for myself for probably nine years before I even seriously considered the concept of marketing because I didn't have to, because I was writing a book every couple of years and that just does it. It just did it for me. 
you know, I, it, it automatically attracts people. I would get training gigs. People would call me out of the blue, like uh, community colleges call me out of the blue. Hey, we've been using your book in our, our computer science curriculum. Could you come and teach a weekend workshop on, you know, like chapters two, three and four and stuff like that? just totally out of the blue or, you know, I'd go and speak at a conference and a line of people would come up to me afterwards and be like, we have to talk. Wow. You know? And yeah. So it yeah. was, it was great for somebody who is clueless or allergic to sales marketing. So you've made yeah, a great case. like that business card. Oh, sorry. You Rune. No, no, go, go. I mean, I was just, you've made a great case now for traditional publishing. So why would we not want to do it? But uh, mm -hmm. Kai, if you yes. have some more comments, that's, that's, uh, that's fine too. For you, the listeners of Freelancer Show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Oh, I was just going to say exactly like Jonathan described, it acts as this attractor. And if you apply even the minimum of sales and marketing, just reaching out to conferences, hello, I am the publisher of insert book title here by insert publisher here. I'd love to talk about thing one or thing two based on my book, da, 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 da. It's very easy to turn sort of this inbound into outbound generated opportunities via training, speaking, lecturing, what have you just on the strength of like you i think you put it incredibly well jonathan the positioning statement that the book nudges or pushes you into based on your work with the publisher so even just applying a little bit of marketing there can have exponential returns for anybody who's gone down the traditional publishing route but again that's separate from what i've seen publishers provide and it very much falls on the author or consultants the author has hired to manage that outreach process yeah so like like if you are if you're an internal employee thinking about going solo as a consultant, a killer thing to do would be to write a, you know, get a book deal with a traditional publisher and, and do it in your spare time. And, and when that thing's ready to launch, you're good to go. You know, like, it, uh, you know, obviously it has to be good. Obviously it has to be on a subject that people care about. Yes, yes. But the publisher will help you get there. And, you know, it's the kind of thing, like if, if you're just going to, stay at a full-time job or you're not really trying to grow your business don't don't go traditional publish route because it's not gonna and think that you're gonna get rich off of a software book like it's not gonna happen i i even outside of the software field i have a close friend who has published i think 13 books and i was chatting with her recently about being an author, writing, and she said, writing is my hobby. I've probably made five cents an hour, if that. <laughs> I love the doors that it's opened for me, but I kept my day job for 30 plus years because that's what supported me and my family. The writing was what I loved doing, and it just 
doesn't pay as well as people think. I think it's the 1% literally that makes it onto the New York Times bestseller list that has traditionally published books really act as a flywheel for their business. If it's not automatically generating it, it needs a lot of outreach work. It needs a lot of marketing work behind the scenes to promote the author. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I should revise what I said earlier about O'Reilly. It's not O'Reilly that's treating publishing as a lost leader for their other things. It's everyone. (laughs) (laughs) The entire publishing industry is a lost leader for other things people want to be doing. Uh, Yeah. So the funny thing about books, just as a quick aside, the funny thing about books is try to get somebody to pay more than 20 bucks for a book. Like books are the best deal going. Like when you think about the highly concentrated information that goes into a book and the price you pay for them, it's absurd. It's I have taken my low. life's knowledge and compacted it down for you, and it yeah. is nineteen dollars. <laughs> it's nineteen bucks. Like I, I priced my self-published book at uh, forty-nine dollars, and you know, depending on certain things you do, depending on who you are on my list, you can get coupon codes and things like that. But it's even the deepest discount, with one exception, I'll get into. Even at the deepest discounts, it's still way more than a physical book. So anyway. Um, but yeah, but we could maybe transition into self-publishing, the pros and cons of self-publishing and, and what the what the motivations are to go that route, I suppose. Yeah, so why, why don't you start, since you, you just started already talking about how yeah. much more money you made. So that's a good starting sure. point. Right, so so you got to take it with a grain of salt, dear listener, because I had already written books. I kind of knew what I was doing. I knew I it wasn't, there was no confidence problem. I knew I knew how to write a book. And I, and I was the same as, the other books, I was really passionate about the subject. I knew what I wanted to say. I had a lot of experience helping people with it. So I was really, all of the development stuff, all of the idea development, the book development, the concept and everything, that was all, that was all like done. And, and you, you need to do that. You need to have that whichever direction you're going to go. I didn't want to go with any of the publishers that I had. I really didn't want to, I was just kind of the idea of having somebody like, you know, be on my back about deadlines and debating how I should word a paragraph. I just didn't want to deal with it. And I was like, and I had never self-published. So I was like, well, I've been reading about self-publishing. I've been looking around. I should just shut up and do it and see what happens. And I think it was inspired heavily by Amy Hoy's just effing ship book and also by our wonderful mastermind, the PCR mastermind, because everyone's always like, just ship the damn thing. Stop talking about it. And so, you know, I cranked it out. And uh, so it was a bunch of reasons. I wanted to try self-publishing. I was pretty sure I could make more money at it than I ever made um, with a uh, an O'Reilly book or any of my other software books. And I felt like it was going to give me enough. It was. It still gives you some street credit. Still gives you some of that de facto positioning because it's like Jonathan Stark, author of hourly billing, is nuts. I mean, it it tells you pretty much where my head's at, right? And my level of commitment to the topic that I, I went ahead and wrote an entire book about it. So, did it. Went ahead and did it. And this is the exception about the discount thing that I was going to say is that the cool thing about the cool thing about the book is it, when, when you're self-publishing, you can do whatever you want. So if you know what you want to do, that's really cool. If you don't know what you want to do, it's overwhelming. But if you do, it's cool. So I got the book done and uh, sent it out to my list. I had about just around 500 people on my mailing list at the time. 
I announced it to the list and I said, I said, uh, book is available. You can buy it here. Since you have been on my list for so long, I'm going to give you a, maybe it was a 20% discount. Uh, there were basically three levels of discounts. There were early adopters. Uh, I think the, I think the, the 20% code was like early adopter. The, there was a 50% off code that I said, you know, social media mavens would be this, the 50% off code. You get the book 50% off. All I ask is that you tweet and share it like crazy on social media. And I'm going to bug you about it. You know, when I launch on product hunt, I want you to, I want you to go there and, and talk about it, vote it up or whatever happens on product hunt, et cetera, so on and so forth. And then there was a hundred percent off evangelist code where you could literally get the book for free. But I promised in the email that I would bug them relentlessly about, um, you know, you, I expect you to read it immediately. I expect you to keep track of any typos, any questions, give me tons and tons of feedback and essentially act as my team of editors. So, and since this was an ebook, it was no big deal if that stuff happened prior to publication because I could just revise it and everybody who had bought it to that point automatically gets the updated version. So other than that, so, so two things there, other than that, uh, the price, the lowest price you can get the book for is something like $34 with like the maximum coupon, which a, a traditional publisher would never let you do. Like a trad publisher would never let you set your own price. A trad publisher would never let you do your own launch marketing like that. It, it, maybe they would, but I doubt it. And, and the, really the biggest thing of everything, why I wanted to self publish was because I wanted my own customers when when you sell through uh, a traditional publisher, you have no idea who bought your book. You don't get their contact information. You don't get their email. You There's absolutely no way to get in communication with them uh, unless they reach out to you first. So I was kind of, I was kind of tired of that. And I was like, I feel like I know what I'm doing. I feel like I can make solid money with this. And I want these to be my customers so that I can offer them special deals. I can bundle the book together with other things that I offer in various ways. I can change my mind about things. I can update it on my schedule. So it was all about like just tons and I wanted tons and tons of control over the entire experience for the reader. And, and you know, for better or worse, that's what you get. So if you know what you want to do, it's, it feels like freedom. And if you don't know what you want to do, it feels like anxiety or being overwhelmed. Right. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right, Jonathan, like self-publishing removes so many constraints from the book creation process that it either could feel like this is a blank canvas, I get to do anything or, oh, holy crap, what the heck am I supposed to do? And I think that uh, another one of the major benefits of self-publishing is you don't necessarily need to conform to a traditional publisher's view of what a book should be. If you want to self-publish a book and it ends up being 10,000 words but still provides value to the buyers, boom, ship it, you're done. If you want to publish a 100,000-word book, great, write it, ship it, you're done. The constraints of, well, it has to fit into this box we as publishers have defined as book-shaped objects fitting into, mm -hmm. that's completely removed. Yep, absolutely. But, but I think it does come down to 
having that existing established audience or having access to some existing established audience. If somebody is listening to this episode and saying, well, hey, I'm hearing these two points, traditional publishers versus self-publishing. I'm going to go down the self-publishing route. I think it is valuable to self-publish a small book, even if you don't have an audience built up already. But if you're expecting to write your own book and launch it to no audience, there's not really going to be a financial uh, uh, upside to the project. There's going to be some authority. There's going to be a, a, a reputation uptake because, hey, you published a thing. But it just won't translate to sales unless you have that prior established audience. And so I think a lot of attention needs to be paid to how you're building that audience over time, how you're launching to that audience, how you're promoting and teasing the book to that audience. Uh, Amy Hoy's 30 by 500 is a wonderful, wonderful course that touches on a lot of these elements. But there is that necessity, I think, to have built up people who are passionate about what you're creating, what you're writing, what you're saying, and present them with the book and say, this is a thing I'm making. If you would like to buy it, here's how you buy it. That's how you get the best outcome from self-publishing in my mind. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, I, I'm, uh, let's see, I'm aware of a few people. I don't want to like reveal anyone's identity, so I'm take choose my words carefully. But I'm aware of a, a, a few people that have put together books that they were going to self-publish. And I, I think across the board, they consider the exercise to be valuable, but they didn't make any money from it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they launched, they, they wrote it with no audience. Uh, they, they had, you know, it was like sort of, I think in, in all cases I can think of, it was basically a consultant slash freelancer type of person. And they decided to write a book and, and cranked out a relatively, you know, by book standards, relatively short one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can, you, you can do all sorts of things with that in terms of, you know, you'd send it out to tastemakers in your industry or to thought leaders in your industry and say, Hey, you know, can I get your, I wrote this thing, I wrote, you get your feedback on it. Maybe you say something specific, like I referenced you in chapter four. Could you, would you mind reviewing it and, and, and let me know if you feel like I've missed the boat or whatever. I think you're, you know, send it to the, the president of a university, a design school and be like, Hey, you know, I wrote this thing. I think that your students would really be interested in it. Um, would you mind would you confirm or deny that for me? You know, you can sort of mm-hmm. use this, this, uh, Philip, if he was here, he would refer to it as a tent pole piece of content where it, the exercise of going through the process of creating a book, it does amazing things for you growth wise in terms of, uh, being able to articulate your ideas clearly, figuring out what it is that you're about, at least in this particular aspect of your business, cause it's probably just in a single thing. And then being able to put that in front of people who are in a position to connect you with other people who stand to benefit from your expertise. But even so, even if it doesn't ever sell, I think it's a valuable exercise to go through I think that any disappointment comes from thinking that it's going to start paying their rent as -hmm. soon as they press the publish button on Gumroad or whatever. And that's just, I mean, it's not impossible. It's certainly not impossible. We have it's a long, of that. long road, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I mean you can. What I've seen recently is that people who make money from their books don't call them books and don't sell them as books. They sell them as courses. 
And in a course, first of all, I think people are just sort of willing to pay more. And second of all, you're saying not you're saying you will learn from me. And somehow, I think people are less willing to, you know, pay for books, or or you're or, or they will pay less. I mean, I guess that's why we all have our tiers in our books, where the assumption is that people will pay more for a course-like thing or video-like thing or extra value. Um, but yeah, if you're planning to make a lot of money from your book, um, well, that 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 sounds like you're on the you know the right road to writing fiction. The best path I've ever seen for an independent consultant or an agency owner who does not yet have an established audience or doesn't have access to an audience but wants to write something or wants to bootstrap their career by writing a book is publishing a book about the problem that they solve. So knowing your expensive problem, knowing your target market, writing a book explaining what the problem is and how to solve it. And using that as the metaphorical business card, a lead contacts you. Hey, great. Let's schedule a call. By the way, here's the book I wrote on my process, my methodology, how I do all of these things. Send a copy over. I've had prospective clients buy my book without ever contacting me and then reach out two weeks later. Hey, we bought the book. We read it. We completely agree with your viewpoints in it. We think it would be perfect. We want this methodology. We don't have enough time to do it ourselves. Can we hire you? And I think that path works well if you view it as I'm writing a book about the specific problem and the entire goal is use it as a business card to bridge to consulting or coaching engagements. That can work well if you don't have an established audience because to a prospect showing up, it's, hey, they have a book. They've assembled 10, 20, 30,000 words about their viewpoints on this topic. That's kind of interesting. And it's a low risk uh, uh, purchase to test it out and see what the consultant's viewpoint is, 30, 40 dollars okay, great, I disagree with this completely. Good thing we didn't work together. Or, oh, wow, they're speaking my language. They understand this problem. How do I hire them? So I like that path a lot as one of the self-publishing routes to take. Yeah, that that ties into what Ruben was talking about with tiers, I think, explicitly. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess I'm just piling on, which is that the you know one of the advantages is that you can bundle your stuff together and sell it however you want. And the, you know, Kai and I both had this experience. In fact, I copied what Kai did with ICM, the independent consulting manual, uh, with the three pricing tiers. One was just the book. The next one was the book plus a bunch of um, pre-recorded bonus materials. Kai will remember better than me exactly what they were. And then the top level tier was, you know, everything, uh, all that plus a one-on-one consultation with people and the, the prices, if I remember correctly, were 49, 119 and 499. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we could get into a pricing discussion about how that worked, but the flexibility of being able to do that and having, whether you have tiers like that or you have related services like, you know, straight up ad hoc consulting, that is on the same topic as what the book is about, or you have a road mapping service maybe in between. If you, if you see the book as a, you know, sort of a, a, a big bunch of energy you put into spinning the flywheel and your, if in your business is focused on that thing, then there's all sorts of follow on benefit from it. The pro- so like, you know, I, th- I say everybody should write a book. Like I've, I've said that many times, but only if you know what you want to write about, like it, like you need to know, you need to be committed if, in order for it to make sense. I think 
to go through the effort of writing that book, I think you really need to, you know, for people like us, freelancers, consultants, independent consultants, that sort of thing, firm owners, if you're going to do that, it needs to make sense in the context of your whole business. Otherwise, it's just a gigantic distraction. So since you're probably not going to make a lot of money off direct sales of it, you're going to want to, you know, make, you might make a little, but you want to also make, you want it to contribute to other sales, which means it needs to be related to the services, the other services that you offer. And it sounds kind of obvious probably to say it like that, but when you flip it around and, and you're the person who's actually thinking about writing the book, you might have an idea for a book that doesn't really map that well to what you do. It might seem like it does, or, or the way that you're positioned is maybe how I should put it. Um, so, you know, that, that I think it's important to, if you're going to go on the journey of, you know, undertaking such a large project with no real promise of financial outcome, it, you want to hedge your bets by making sure that there are either related services that you can offer for people who do want their hand held and don't just want to like, read the book and implement it themselves. Uh, otherwise it's, it's just, oof, you know, it, one, brutal. One similar challenge or problem that I see people run into is, am I writing this for an audience of peers or am I writing this for an audience of potential clients, prospects? And I think, <laughs> yeah, on. knowing that early Big on difference. is super, super important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Getting into that, just, Oh, Jonathan, please. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I had that problem. So my book was for, was not for my buyers actually. So the, the, the my consulting buyers were, you know, SVPs, directors, CXOs, you know, board members, that sort of thing. So people that could, you know, write me a five figure check every month with no approvals and, and the book itself was for developers. Like a CIO was not going to read my book. You know, CIO of a Fortune 500 company was not going to read my book. But this, I got kind of lucky. There two things can happen. One is that the people who do have their book coffee stained on their desk are often the people who get asked who, you know, that so someone farther up is like, hey, who should we hire that's an expert on fixing this problem that we can't seem to fix? And they'll be, they'll be like, look down at their desk and it's like, well, this guy's emails right here, you know, yeah. so that, that can happen. But I, but it, uh, it does push you into products that are more like training, which is not a bad thing, but it does push you into that direction. So you, I found myself doing workshops and training classes and, and speaking at web developer conferences instead of speaking at you know, a place where an average CIO would show up. So it wasn't that common for me to speak at a place where my ideal buyers were hanging out. Uh, so it was always a word of mouth thing, sort of up the grassroots word of mouth up the chain, which just happened to work for me because mobile was such a giant thing when I, uh, when I published that. So lots of early adopters and innovators were looking for any kind of expertise they could to hedge what, what were huge risky bets that they were, they were placing. So they were looking everywhere. Um, CIOs probably were searching for authors, not that they were going to read the book, but they were probably doing searches for like mobile consultant, you know, that kind of thing. And if you're the author of a book on, uh, on that, even the technical aspect of that subject, there just wasn't a lot coming up, you know, 
But I think I got really lucky in that regard. It was just really good timing because it was not true with my subsequent books that were on a similar topic. So like the Android version of that book did okay, but nothing compared to the first one. And whenever I did end up getting a consulting gig, they never mentioned the Android book, which was more recent. They always mentioned the iPhone book. Wow, very so, interesting. Yeah, it was just a timing thing, really. I'm reminded but, of uh, Philip Morgan's quote about positioning and specialization, uh, sort of picking you up and dropping you into a smaller pond, and you are by de facto the biggest fish in that pond. It sounds like a similar experience with publishing the iPhone book. You were the big fish in this smaller pond of mobile development in that time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two years later when I released the Android book, the pond was gigantic and it just didn't, you know, it was, you know, like SAP was, had their hat in the ring at that point, you know, mm -hmm. Deloitte and IBM, it was like, you know, competing with those people. So it was just a totally different game two years later. Um, I, I got lucky because my book wasn't for my actual buyers. My buyers were just really desperate and they were, there was just not a lot to choose from at the time. So ideally what you would do is is identify who your target market is and then who your ideal buyer is inside of that target market, whether it's founder, CEO, or lead developer, it depends on what you sell. And maybe it's HR, it, it depends. But figure out who that ideal buyer is and write a book for them, not people that they maybe will ask for you know, a recommendation, which is tricky because you, I, I find that most people are, are, who are very focused on their craft you know, whether it's, I don't know, vanilla JavaScript or NetSuite programming or whatever, they are really used to reading stuff from their peers and, and writing stuff for their peers. And they, they don't really understand their buyers. It's almost like they get hired almost through dumb luck. And, and you know, I'll ask people, where do your leads come from? They're like, I honestly don't know. They just emailed me for, for some reason and, and they never even find out, you know, mm -hmm. so oh, I, I always ask, like, just, just as a matter of habit now, it's just today, earlier today, I got a call from someone saying, hey, I'd like to do a Python class. And I said, great. And we talked for a bit. And I said, by the way, how did you get my name? And it's always fascinating to hear how these things come through the grapevine or they read something and it's good feedback to get, right? If you get phone calls every week or email every week from people begging for your services and every single one of them says, oh, and I read your book. Write another book. <laughs> right. right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm belaboring the point, but writing for your peers, unless you're planning on selling to your peers, which is fine, then then you want to write for your ideal buyer of your other stuff. So, you know, if you are offering training classes in Python and you write an amazing book about learning Python, then it's a perfect fit to have, have workshops and training classes and maybe video courses and it's a perfect fit because it's the same audience. But in my case, as time went on, it, those, my, my actual buyer and my, my actual audience diverged and it became really hard. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like this is something that is a pro as we discussed earlier on the traditional publisher side, sitting down with somebody who is asking you these questions. Who is this for? How is it different? What's the point of the book? Why does it matter to the reader? These are all questions that somebody who's self-publishing should take the time to ask themselves because you need to have strong answers to these questions for a self-published book to be successful or to be successful above a certain point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They at least have some kind of outside input. I think you, if you're disciplined about it, you can seek that out 
from trusted associates and colleagues and peers and that sort of thing. Or maybe you even have connections with past clients who were ideal and you want to get more of them and you know you perhaps bounce it off other people. But um, but yeah, it's it's built into the traditional publishing model because they're the ones standing to make all the money. So they want to make sure that there's actually an audience. And right. so yeah, it, it's that is definitely a pro. All right. Any other comments, suggestions about uh, the, the trade-offs or where people should go? Do you guys have any sense of like what you're going to do with your next books? I was about to ask the same question. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm firmly on the self-publishing route for, I'd say, the next two to five years because I like the lack of externally expo or imposed constraints. I like the ability to create something smaller, iterate on it launch it to my list, have, say like, hey, this is the beta version. Version one's coming out in another two months, but you get the core meat of the ideas, typos included for free, and then iterate on it and create a new version of it. I like that freedom and that ability, and I think that's going to be more powerful and help me build up an audience over the next few years. And I could see, similar to how Paul Jarvis sold numbers of copies of his self-published book, built up an audience, and then went the traditional publisher route to understand it better and get wider exposure for his book, potentially doing something similar to that. But really, for the next three to five years, it's self-publishing. Jonathan, how about you? Yeah, I'm, I've got one more that's ready to come out. Cover's done. I've got my first reader lined up. Um, all of that. Just need to give it one last editorial pass. So I'll definitely be self-publishing that one. Uh, but I do, uh, I, I do see in my future a traditional book deal of a more broad business topic. So it, obviously it's going to be, well, not obviously, but uh, I'm going to be careful to make sure that it aligns with my body of work that's currently out. So, you know, hourly billing is nuts. The next book is going to be called the freelancers roadmap. And it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's for people to make that leap from, being a kind of commodity freelancer to an in-demand consultant, like an expert. So all of a sudden you're not competing on price, how to price your services, you know, all the stuff we talk about. Um, but that still, that market I think is not, not broad enough for the kind of publisher that I'm going to look for the the airport bookstore publisher, you know, it needs to be, a, I think, a, I just don't think that that would fly. I'll find out, but um, I am going to see what happens. Because I've, I'm always thinking of ideas for books I write all the time, and I've got a follow-up one to the freelancer's roadmap that I think would be more broadly applicable in general business about, well, I won't spoil it yet, but it's it's going to be about um, something that would be of interest to the average person, uh, business traveler. And that, I think, um, it'll be all the same stuff, but sort of for a different person. And I think that... Uh, for that one, I'm going to explore the, the possibility of going the traditional route. Obviously not with a software publisher, like a, like a, I don't know. I don't even know who the players are. Right. So I need to do, need to do some research. Um, I saw that post from, uh, Paul, but I didn't read it yet. So I presume we'll put some links in the show notes and see how that goes. So how about yourself, Ruben? Yeah, so I, th I think I'm leaning in two different directions here. So first of all, I have these conversations the next week or two um, with traditional publishers. And one of them had even, and I'm not sure if he was dangling this in front of me as an ego thing or if it was an actual thing, but he really liked, I mean, the, the, the two books that I've written so far about programming are different from most in that 
they don't try to teach you the technology. They're just exercises, right? So practice makes Python is 50 exercises to improve your fluency. Meaning, I assume you've already taken a course. I assume you've already read a book. And now you just want to like improve your understanding so that you can do your job better. And so uh, the publisher I spoke with like two, two years ago said, well, I really like this idea. Maybe we could have like, you know, the Reuven Learner series of exercises. At the time, uh, I, I could barely fit out the door of my office because my ego was so inflated um, after having that conversation. And yet I keep thinking, maybe I should have said yes. So I think when I talk to him, I'll, I'll ask him, you know, sort of where, where things stand. Maybe that might be an interesting thing to do. And that would sort of, because at this point, I'm looking for those books to get me into new uh, clients, have people invite me to speak, have, me, uh, have them invite me to train. And I think that through the traditional publisher, that would be advantageous. At the same time, I still have this book that I'm planning on doing, sort of writing little by little and outlining about how to do technical training. Um, and that I just don't see a traditional publisher um, being interested in or being able to give me the ROI that I'd want. Um, and so on that one, if and when I actually publish it, I think I'll go the, the self-publishing route. I think the self-publishing route makes a lot of sense for that book because it provides such a high return for a buyer. Somebody who says, I want to learn more about how to do technical trainings, either wants to improve or wants to uh, uh get started and it can be very, very lucrative. So by self-publishing, you could say, well, the value here is in the tens of thousands of dollars. If you apply the ideas correctly, I'm charging a hundred, 200, $300 for this to teach you how to do this better, which wouldn't really fit into the traditional publisher model. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I just can't imagine a publisher, no matter how good they are, like O'Reilly charging, you know, $90 for a book. We didn't even get into the whole issue of like, how do they deal? How would they deal with, videos, bundles, and so forth, but another time. Or, or after my conversation, I'll be happy to update everyone. I'll tell you what they said. Okay. Well, this was great. Uh, picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere available from any device uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hi. What do you got for us in terms of picks? I've got two. One is, uh, we'll link to it in show notes. It's one of my favorite evergreen articles. It's by Robin Sloan on Snark, on, uh, uh, Snark Market called Stock and Flow. And it talks about the economic concept of stock and flow, but how it applies to media, how we want flow being the feed, small things we're putting out there, and then stock, the more durable stuff, like a book that we self-publish or go through a traditional publisher on. It, uh, I've been thinking of it the entire time we've been having this conversation, and I feel it'd be a loss for the listeners if we didn't link to it in the show notes. The second resource I'd like to call out as a pick is uh, our friend Jeremy Green's 
uh, sasremark.io. It lets you turn markdown documents into, or markdown text into beautiful documents for printing and publishing. I use it myself for all of my books, all of my content upgrades, all the downloadables that I send people. So it's uh, one of my favorite tools out there and highly, highly recommended to people who say, hey, I like markdown. I want to publish something, be it a small booklet or a larger book. How can I go from markdown to something that's pretty and well-designed and remark is the answer. Excellent. Excellent. I actually never heard of Snark Market, so luckily I don't have any other websites I pay attention to, so I'll be able to fit this one right in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Jonathan, what you got in terms of picks? Uh, Yeah, I will plus one on Remark. That's what I use to create hourly billing is nuts, so if you've seen that, you've got an idea of what it can do. And one of the things that I... like Kai said, it makes a really nice design. It, you know, it's I didn't design anything. It just has these predefined layouts that justify the text, do all the things for you. Output it as EPUB and Mobi and PDF. And in fact, you can even output it as a PDF that's suitable to send to somebody like blurb.com to get it printed physically for you. Uh, but the thing that Kai didn't mention is that it automatically creates a table of contents for you which, as far as I'm concerned, is worth the price of admission just for that. So big fan of Remark. Uh, That's my first pick, or I guess half pick. Uh, I am a big fan of Send Owl for selling the digital products like this. I know there's other ones out there, Easy Digital Downloads we talked about last week. Send Owl is not pretty. It doesn't do a lot. Well, it does a lot, but, you know, it, it... it's utilitarian, let's put it like that. But it doesn't let you get fussy. It just does what it does, and that's all it does. And that's really probably all you need if you're getting started. It, you might outgrow it at some point, but it, if you're getting started, I haven't come across one that's uh, simpler and does all the basic things that you need. And then the last thing is I want to I sort of put Tim Grawl on people's radar. So if you're thinking about publishing, you should be familiar with Tim Grawl. And I'm going to link specifically to an interview he did with Dan Pink, who is, uh, you know, had multiple New York Times bestsellers. And, and Tim is basically a, uh, he's a, sort of like a book marketing guy, but he's, uh, I don't know, he just feels like a normal person, not like some, I don't know, yucky marketer type. But he's had a bunch of clients that uh, repeatedly end up on the New York Times bestseller list. So he must be doing something right. And he's got enough pull with them to get them on to do interviews with them. So uh, you should really check out the Dan Pink interview if you're thinking about doing the author thing. Tim's a wonderful guy. A wonderful, wonderful human. Love him. Yeah, I've never met him, but he seems great. Huh. I actually have never never read his stuff. So huh, more things to read. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for me. So I got two picks for this week. One, as I mentioned... Uh, before we started recording, so I, I was just in the U.S. for a few weeks of vacation, and one of the toys I picked up was an Amazon Echo, a.k.a. Alexa. And um, I'm sure it's also useful, but boy, it's actually a lot of fun. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping to learn to program it so that I can actually fulfill the promise I made to my family that it was not just a toy that I bought. Um, <laughs> those, those of you outside the U.S. should know that it does not work so well outside the U.S. Um, it, will o- it will only let you enter U.S. addresses. And I actually found a website that lets you change that, tells you how to change that. But it seems that Amazon people have access to the internet and they read that website and shut that functionality down. So, oh well. 
Um, but it's still a lot of fun and definitely worth playing with. And if just to marvel at the current state of AI and machine learning and what it can do. The, my second pick is actually the, their client of mine. I gave a course there about a month or two ago and decided to check out their software and have been blown away. Um, it's a company called My Heritage, where it's actually a great story. They started off doing facial recognition in photos. You like upload photos and it was getting pretty good recognizing faces. And they, if I remember correctly, they didn't quite know what to do with this technology. So they started letting people put together family trees and so you could identify faces in your family. And they are now the leading sort of the 900-pound gorilla, as far as I know, in the family tree genealogy market online. And their software is extraordinary. Really, like, it takes a lot for a software person to really praise software. It is so much fun and so interesting. I've become quite the addict. And I've added, like, 400-some-odd people from my extended family and discovered all sorts of things about relatives who went to South America and all sorts of great stuff. Um, you do end up getting sort of interesting notifications. Uh, like, if I'm not mistaken, I, I recently got a notice. Here we go. I, I was just told that they found a match for the great-great-grandmother of the, of the father of my sister's ex-husband. Okay, this is <laughs> perhaps not as useful as you might have hoped, but still interesting. And my sister's appreciative that her son will have family information. Um, so definitely, if you're interested in exploring your family, uh, especially if you're from a Western European or North American country where records are really good, you can find out a lot. A lot about people who live now, a lot about people who are in your family before. And as I said, it's kind of addictive and fun at uh, MyHeritage.com. And there we go. That does it for another episode. Thank you, Kai and Jonathan, for joining me. Thank you to all of our listeners out there in podcast land. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Freelancer Show. Ruben, one more thing. Yes. What did I forget? This is Kai's, this is Kai's first show. Welcome, Kai. Oh, yeah, sorry. We forgot, sorry. To, we forgot to welcome Kai as a panelist. Oh, my God. That's right. That's right. We're so, we're so used to like having you around on occasion and enjoying you. I forgot. Now we'll yes. be enjoying you a lot. Exactly. So <laughs> yes. Oops. Kai, well, we do I'm not excited to be here. Welcome, and we do not take you for granted, even though we just took you for granted. <laughs> Ow. Yes. So, dear listener, Kai Davis, official. Woohoo! Woohoo! Excited to be here. If any of uh, the listeners want to learn a little more about me, uh, uh, best spot is kaidavis.com, K A I D A V I S.com. I send out a daily email about freelancing and consulting and how to get more clients. And if you sign up today, I guarantee you'll get tomorrow's email in your inbox. So that's the best way to learn a little more about me and uh, see what I'm sharing out there. And it's great stuff. I highly encourage yes. you all to read it. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, so welcome, Kai. And now we will be here next week on the freelance show. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.